0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Robert Pruitt. The California African American Museum in Los Angeles is showing Robert Pruitt, Devotion, a survey of Pruitt's large-scale drawing and sculpture installed with art that has informed Pruitt's work. The exhibition was curated by Mar Hollingsworth and will be on view through February 17th. Robert Pruitt's drawing, sculpture, animation, and more brings together spiritual traditions, fictional narratives, technology, and science fiction in a way that suggests new stories and new black identities. Pruitt has received solo shows at museums such as the Studio Museum in Harlem and the Ulrich Museum of Art in Wichita, Kansas. His work is in the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the ICA Boston, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, the Studio Museum, and more. On the second segment, I'll talk about the end of landscape in 19th century America with art historian Maggie Chow. But first, Robert Pruitt after the break. What is the sound of community? Find out at Sounds of LA, a free annual concert series at the Getty that explores our city's varied musical geography. Each month features concerts by charismatic musicians who combine global influences in unexpected ways. On January 19th and 20th, hear the Puerto Rican Bomba and Plana sounds of Los Planeros de la Twenty one. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which he achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, is on view through February 16, 2019. For more information, visit PulitzerArts.org. And we're back. Robert Pruitt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: The show at the California African American Museum is full of portraits.
1: Why does portraiture interest you? I don't know if I'm interested in portrait, portraiture so much as I'm interested in the body. They are portraits. They're you know images of people and faces and identities. But I think my first love has just been trying to render like bodies and kind of like a like a very relaxed kind of natural state and so i think that might be a little bit different than like you know like the history of portraiture and and all the sort of like ideas that kind of go into it even though that stuff kind of comes into the work i think initially it's just about the activity of pencil paper and the figure
0: so did that interest come from day-to-day experience or did it come out of art history
1: i mean i mean honestly it came out of my childhood reading and drawing comic books, really responding to like, you know, different drawing styles and like those sort of really heroic kind of body figures. But like, as I kind of went through art school and my approach to it changed, but I think at the root, it's still, I'm still just sort of that same, I have the same enjoyment of drawing the the body as, as I did when I was in high school and junior high.
0: You have collected comic books off and on throughout your life. Are there things in your work that when you look at a show of it or look at a wall of, of, you know, six or eight pieces that you think, hmm, yep, that's from comics?
1: You know, I tend to do things that I I tend to be attracted to things that are like in my own work that are maybe a little absurd or abnormal. And I think that that comes from that world of comics where like almost anything can happen. People are superhuman and, and that sort of thing. I don't necessarily make superhero sometimes i do but but i think i'm trying to render people in i don't know if absurd is the right word but just in kind of not normal attire and context and i think that's sort of drawn directly from from that world or it's rooted in that world i'll say it like that
0: i think absurd is a really good word because the first time i saw the show at cam i you know i'd seen your work before but there are are a number of works in the show that have absurd elements at least i'm thinking of a work like supreme lover in which you have a man who's kind of aggressively quite aggressively posed and he has a tiara of roses in his hair that's not surrealistic it's you know but it is but absurd's a good word
1: (laughs) that drawing is meant to be a little yeah i guess absurd works
0: yeah it's not it's not a crown of thorns it's a crown of the flower
1: (laughs) that whole like for me the whole thing is Taking these figures that come from these sort of religious histories and reimagining the mythology in a way that I think could work for myself and what I imagine could work for like a larger community of African American people, you know, in the country. So instead of this sort of like obsession with the tortured. Christ figure, I wanted to make sort of a suave, maybe, you know, virile figure. So like the thorns become roses and it becomes about life and vitality and like creation instead of, you know, the sort of sacrificial death. I don't know if you noticed, like on his shirt, he has a a small drawing and that's based on a a Basquiat drawing called The Birth of Earth. And uh, so it's about like the, the creation of the universe, so I'm trying to reimagine a mythology that is more affirming, I suppose. Everything
0: about the pose is that. I mean, the the way his arms are positioned, I don't want to say hanging because that, that brings to mind, you know, a different kind of Christ. But the way his arms are, are posed, his shoulders are, are are thrown back, I mean, really far back. He's a guy with an enormous amount of presence. I'm glad you brought up kind of where some of the poses come from. This show is full of Catholicism. Or is it full of capital C Catholic
1: art? Or for you, is there a distinction? I, it's not Catholicism. I mean, I, I grew up Baptist in Texas. That's Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm just trying to locate it, locate myself in a in a position where even understanding... The roots of the the religion I was even like raised in was r- really distant. Like, so even knowing that that Catholicism, not just like Catholicism as a Catholicism as a thing, but even as as a historical root for the thing that I was being raised in, I didn't know anything about it. I knew very little. I think maybe the reason you would sort of feel that in the work, I don't know if it's just sort of the the ritualistic kind of nature of some of the materials I'm putting in the work but it's not it's not Catholicism I mean it really, it really is like a Baptist Protestant obsessive kind of religiosity that I was sort of looking at so it's more mining catholic art I suppose but I I think without even knowing it if that makes sense I don't know
0: so take take a ascension from 2017 which is a drawing in the show we'll have an image on manpodcast.com It is a picture of a woman. She is looking above and beyond us, a heavenly gaze. Your presentation of her is kind of cut off mid-thigh. There is very much a feeling that, I mean, you know, there's obviously the title of the work, but there's very much this feeling that she's ascending, you know, like this is a Spanish or Italian ascension scene and it's hard i don't know it seems very capital c catholic art to me
1: (laughs) I, i mean you know i think some of the some of the symbolism is just kind of baked into like the larger culture i i mean i'm obviously you know i have a degree in painting and i went to art school and sort of i don't i don't really i don't really respond to some of the histories of art in terms of producing my own work but i think maybe because those things are kind of like i said baked into the culture they kind of pop out but, for me, like the notion of a figure ascension, like the ascent the idea of ascension in a religious sense, it it existed in like my own childhood, my own sort of religious childhood that was absent those histories. Like it was how it was how those that thing was interpreted for me in a religious setting. And then I'm reinterpreting it through this figure who is meant to be. Like there's a sexual tension, there's also these spaceships on her blouse that kind of imply alien abduction and sort of mixing in religion and science fiction and, you know, sexual joy kind of all as a as one thing, kind of like a you know, a religious moment, I guess. But it doesn't it's still for me, it's a very I'm still drawn on like a very particular place, I guess.
0: The the other the other big departure from kind of the history of art which is not full of spaceships on tank tops (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, is the way you pose her her uh, arms and hands so in in a catholic ascension we would see mary with her arms out in 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 ecstasy the left hand of the figure in your ascension keeps drawing my eye over and over again it's it's bunching up either lifting or holding her skirt but it's also kind of right at eye level because you're looking up at her. We'll talk more about about your 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 drawing point of view. Tell me about that that hand, her left hand. It's on the right hand side of of the painting, and and how you got there.
1: So I, I wanted it to. I mean, how I got there is a whole convoluted. You know, I have models. They come in and they do things, and I respond to those photographs and build from that. I don't think I. Directed my model to do this thing, but it was sort of seeing images and then, like, as I'm putting together an exhibition and building on that gesture, like, oh, I really like that. What can I? How can I like you know build this into a thing? Because I don't remember what the model
0: was actually wearing. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter almost.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I make a lot of changes. You know, I, it, when I'm when I'm starting the the thing. Yeah, I don't think she had a dress on at all. I think it was just tights or something. But anyway. It was, it's really meant to be like a lifting to kind of, I I kind of wanted to like really double down on this, this notion of upward movement. I mean, there's the gaze looking up, we're looking up at this woman. It may be even like over the top, like she's looking up, there's spaceships, we're looking up at her, the skirt is coming up. And like, I, I just really wanted that feeling of like, you know, like you're looking at the drawing and maybe you yourself are starting to look up. Like as a, as a, as a thing, you know? Oh yeah. I, I mean, one
0: of the things you do a lot, the point of view you use in a lot of your portraits, including in this one is, is of slightly looking up at your subjects, kind of Charles White, but minus the mannerism, if you will. And it's consistent enough thing you do across a lot of your work that it feels like a foundational decision. Do you remember when and how you came
1: to it? Oh, it has been so gradual. I mean, you know, I'm an artist. I'm a human. I can be a little bit of a hypocrite. Like one of the original sort of influences when I started making these things was Michelangelo. And I mean, like this is back in like undergraduate and like the Sistine Child, like looking up at like these these images that you look up towards. Right. And those and like reproducing those images, but in like a context that was African-American. And I felt like those images were so grand that I wanted them to feel large and kind of above us, the viewers looking at the work. So it kind of started there. And I think it has now, like, I I don't even know if I think about it anymore. It's so like, it's the position I take when I'm starting the process. And I think it, it kind of feel it fills the frame in a way that's interesting to me, like to slightly be a little bit below the person. I also want them to feel Heroic? A little bit of the comic book influence. Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean you don't you're, I don't mean to suggest that your points of view are as dramatic as, as you know we get in cells of comic books, but But you're but you're not being as dramatically mannerist as Charles White either.
1: No, 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 no.
0: You were talking about how both in Supreme Lover and in Ascension that you're collapsing multiple things into a a single artwork. And in other interviews, you've talked about how one of the things you think about is having past, present, and future in a single object. And I think that's in each of, of these first two works we've been talking about. Is that kind of a rule for you, something that, that has to be there? Or is it more kind of an underlying philosophical approach?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a rule because I, I don't feel the need to like constantly adhere to it, but it is one of the things that... like undergirds everything. And part of it is this about where I feel like the consciousness of African Americans kind of exists. I mean, maybe everybody's like this, but I'm thinking through it through like that very particular lens of having like sort of a hyper awareness of your sort of origin, like Black people coming to the United States through this history of slavery, right? Which is the not everybody comes through that kind of same history, obviously, but it's the sort of foundational, like, root. So we're, like, obs- like, obsessed with trying to, like, understand that moment because so many things happen in that moment where your understanding of, like, your history and your identity were snatched away. So we have this, like, obsession with that. And then there's this aspirational thread that runs through Black culture of always trying to... You know, achieve and aspire. I mean, even you know, I think it kind of runs through our DNA in a in a in a bit. In that we have been located in such of a limited like space in this country that we're always trying to like climb out of it. So there's this like obsession with the past and obsession with the future at the same time. Like and like it exists in your mind at the same time, and and it just feels like you know almost like time travel, and I wanted to, I like to like try to have that in the work, literally kind of present in the work, that, that all these things are happening in the same consciousness.
0: One other kind of broad thing I'd like to ask about before we get back into specific drawings is is your palette. You don't use bright colors, you know, colors that might be of a specific moment or temporal or even art historically referencing and you mostly prefer muted tones that kind of vaguely suggest, at least to me, that we might be looking into the past. What about muted tones, if you'll forgive it, uh, the phrase, um, appeals to you?
1: I dyed the paper with coffee to kind of give it, like the entire drawing, like uh, sort of a you know brownish kind of, I don't want to say vintage, but it does kind of give it like a an aged sort of look. And so for me, it's mostly about having that color underneath the work as like a foundational skin color for these these figures. So when I first started making these large drawings, I was working on, you know, that really terrible kind of craft paper you can get in a roll. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff behind like my continued use of it. But part of it was that I was really trying to, as a young artist, I was trying to reject this notion of whiteness, even though we're talking about, you know, you know, I suppose the color white as like a neutral kind of background that we work on. I wanted to like maybe for myself shift that to where this kind of brownness was the neutral color and everything else kind of happened around that. And so that paper worked perfectly for that. But that paper, aside from it, you know, having whatever problems with acid and being archival, which was never a huge kind of concern for me, the paper itself was really difficult to work with and that it tore really easy, creased really easy. So when I had to make the decision to move to like, you know, traditional art papers, drawing papers or whatever, I wanted to bring back that color. And I found that with, you know, dyeing it myself, I mean, I tried washes with like acrylic paint and other things, but they kind of changed the surface in a way that wasn't comfortable to work on. And I, I used tea, I, you know, I was talking to, she also worked on that paper before. And anyway, I, I, I think I'm rambling, but I started using tea and then I switched to coffee because it gave me a quicker, deeper color to work with. And so I think my interest in that is just, it's reflection of like a skin color, a, a natural sort of more organic color. And then, you know, pulling out from that, like my my, my color palette is really just based on the colors that Conte comes in. About maybe three, four years ago, I really stopped using a lot of color in the work, mostly because I kind of wanted to, like, get a hold on what I was doing. It's really kind of difficult to explain, but I felt like I was kind of all over the place, and I really wanted to maybe focus on drawing. And so I wanted to limit the choices that I made And that meant I don't need to deal with all these other colors. I can just use this like really blacks, reds, and like, you know, whites from erasers or highlights and that sort of thing. And I can really focus on my draftsmanship and, you know, scale and. Probably
0: the less color you use, the more the viewer notices body posture and positioning.
1: Right. I think so. I think so.
0: So I'm kind of fascinated by the way you use recent art history, too. And as a way into that, I'd like to talk about a work called Mama from 2011 that's in the collection of the Nasher Museum at Duke. It's a really terrific object. And I don't know, we'll have an image of it on on manpodcast.com. I'm going to let you choose where we start. Do we start at the very top of the artwork or do we start with her t-shirt?
1: That piece is actually, it's not a diptych, but I did two pieces at the same time. There's one called Oba and then there's this one Mama and it was like I don't know, I just imagine them together. But I mean that's here here nor there. Because they'll never be together. So uh oh the t-shirt says Sankori. Oh and yeah, she's wearing two t-shirts. She's wearing
0: two t-shirts, yeah. One on her head, one covering her face, and one it's it's a t-shirt of of um, a painting called Lottie Mama, L A W D Y, painted by Barkley Hendricks, in which a woman with an afro is before a, a gold kind of you know 16th century italian painting or 15th century italian painting gold ground well let's start with the t-shirt because we both keep talking about the t-shirt how did how did that barclay Hendricks end up on that t-shirt in something you made
1: so i you know in talking about art history you know you, you asked me about catholicism earlier and similar there are swaths of like I guess what I would think of as like Western art history that I choose to not represent in the work in very literal ways. I choose to bring in artwork by African-American artists who have come before me as a way to kind of, I'm trying to create like a canon for myself, I guess. Like artists who I've looked at that have kind of influenced my work or who I've or maybe even, if not influence, I'm just really attracted to the, the work that they make. And I try to, like, in a very literal way, like, bring it into the images that I make. Just to point towards them. And I think Barkley Hendricks is, is, like, you know, a really obvious kind of reference just in terms of figurative Black work. You know, figurative images of people of color and African Americans.
0: Against neutral grounds. Foregrounding the figure.
1: Right. Exactly. I think he's sort of like a kind of just a very obvious choice for me to kind of be influenced by. But so I, I in in that idea of like, you know, past, present, and future, there's also the headdress. So I feel like those two things, like the image on the shirt and the headdress kind of work in tandem for this, the person who's wearing it to kind of basically create their kind of inner identity and like exhibit it to us, like thinking about a possible history for themselves and a possible present. If we can think of Barkley Hendricks work as, you know, you know, a present moment, like it's, it's modern history. It's not like ancient African history, but, and so it's a way for this person to kind of inhabit both of those histories at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I should, I should describe the headdress. I, I, I think it's yoruban And as you mentioned, it's a Galede headdress headdress which is a reference to the Glendae Festival, which is about honoring women, ancestors, you know, women dead or alive, or or goddesses. So it makes sense, given how Glende, uh headdresses were, were used or worn. But why the T-shirt? And what does the T-shirt say?
1: I mean, the T-shirt is, I mean, it is, it is like, it's an informal sort of attire. Like T-shirts being very like, like a very like, everyday, informal sort of attire. And I think maybe in contrast to like the notion of like a ritual headdress, like it's almost like an undressing of the of the figure. There's the headdress and then there's the T-shirt as the mask and the T-shirt says Sankori, which is a, another thing that I, I referenced in the work in some of the other works that I've made. But that T-shirt literally being part of the costume that maybe this person was wearing, but the rest of the costume no longer being there. And so this being underneath this sort of idea of, like his painting, I don't want to speak to what his painting might be about. I'll speak to what like I kind of get from it, but this notion of beauty and power, the the symbolism of the Afro and the moment that maybe this work was sort of produced out of, and even like the title kind of having a very emotive, Lordy mama, like it really kind of speaks to like an excitement about a person's beauty. And that being underneath this costume and this figure maybe exhibiting that and and feeling a relationship to that space in a sense. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how else to talk about it. Other than like I do kind of sometimes piece these things together from like, you know, like how do I build an image that points to like five different things at once and make sure that they all that they all exist together at the same moment?
0: It's doing that right down to the mid-century chair she's sitting in.
1: <laughs> chairs, man. The chairs really, they are less of a pointed selection than a history of, I don't know if this is crazy, but like a history of like the spaces and studios that I've worked in. And like, they're always like, it's the chairs that are just, that just happen to be in a particular studio that I'm working out of at the moment. And my, it's kind of interesting to kind of remember those spaces for me. And I feel like I'm kind of hiding those histories in the work for myself that I I remember that being a very comfortable chair. You know, I was using it as my desk chair and like.
0: Totally. But it also adds kind of another specific time reference to a drawing that's full of them and and, 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 a neat futzing up of, of tidiness, of potential tidiness. So this this work, Mama, like a lot of your other works, reference disparate cultural traditions and joins them to make something new and different. And on your website, you refer to it as fictional ethnography, which I think is a phrase that comes from literature criticism. And I want to talk about that a little bit more via a portrait of yours called Steeped, um, which is also from 2011. It's in the collection of the Virginia MFA. We'll have an image of it on, on com. Tell me how you decided to make her hair.
1: I had done a few drawings with pyramids as like these sort of afro shapes. like, But instead of like them being like sort of large and and as absurd as this thing is. And these were like, you know, what we would consider like traditional Egyptian pyramids, I guess. I would kind of make them into almost mohawks. Like I was really trying to think of ways to create architecture so,
0: so to kind of take an afro that's already architectural in a way and to add further architecture to it
1: right like i think one of the first things i did was you know tatlin's monument and that led me to you know these pyramid shapes and that led me you know to you know a further exploration into like even this sort of thing and wanting to like draw it like i i was doing those drawings and like they were maybe too subtle, I guess. Uh, I wanted something, you know, almost, keep coming back to the word absurd, but like, I wanted it to be, you know, something that couldn't really exist and to try to to to, to render that. And so, and and it's called steeped, and then, ah, I don't know how else to talk about it. Like, it's really thinking about like the angles of the pyramid as being steep, but also like a person kind of steeped in a particular history and thinking about, I think at the time I was looking at like the, potential African presence in South America, you know, pre-Columbian uh, history. Yeah, and it's, like, a, it's a South American pyramid that kind of comes up out of her Afro or is part of her Afro. Right. And like the belief amongst like many African American people that like, you know, there's a, there's an embedded kind of African culture in those histories. And like, which I think maybe that history is not some of the, like, some of the historical things that, they may, not, they may not be as true as we believe them, but for me, it's like the belief is actually what's more interesting, Like, because it, it kind of counters the things that we feel like we are told about ourselves. And so then there's this sort of resistance and even exaggerated identity. Like, oh, I have no history? No, I'm at the center of every history. and And kind of like wearing that as a symbol or as a sign you know and and for me that's what she's doing like wearing these these other histories and and also I'm looking I was really looking for ways to identify you know cultures and histories and civilizations that were not western that were not european to really kind of dig into like the mythologies and histories that kind of shaped the world that were outside of europe and so sometimes those things pop up in the work and
0: they do a lot often in tattoos so there's a work in the cam show called creator and redeemer from 2016 where the history or histories pop up in both of the tattoos on both of the women in the drawing the one i want to raise is the woman on the left who has a tattoo on her back her entire back that looks like the lady uh, the our lady of guadalupe the classic 17th century uh, Mexico originated image of an apparition of the Virgin, except you do something to it. So, what is the iconography you changed, and why?
1: I switched the Virgin for Harriet Tubman, and so it's an image of same, you know, all the same sort of uh, elements of that image, but with a figure with with the drawing of Harriet Tubman in place of of Virgin Mary, as a you know, as a almost like saintly figure in not, our history not,
0: not almost i mean you've made her one
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah
0: no i mean one of the things i love about what you do with it here is of course our lady of guadalupe isn't a rep is very specifically not a representation of the virgin mary it's a it's a representation of an apparition uh, a 17th century mexican priest i think had of the virgin mary were you consciously, intentionally using, I don't know, tricking history to make Harriet Tubman, who of course was a real person and, and famous for her role in the Underground Railroad in which she, to stay alive, had to be an apparition. Um, were you constantly playing with that idea of, of apparition and belief and, 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 and yeah, all that?
1: I, not Not apparition. I mean, that history is really interesting. But no, I was, in terms of using that tattoo, I was... Specifically thinking of the culture of people who get that tattoo and wanted to kind of represent, I feel like the emotion of that, like, you know, it feels very um, like not gang culture, but like it It feels like a, the kind of tattoo you would see, like a type of working class or, or I wanted to represent a thing that came from a, a non formal sort of highbrow place. And so it's meant to really replicate the history of that as a tattoo and the sort of, like, religiosity of of getting images, like, embedded into your skin and into your body, of particular kind of religious histories. And it's meant to match with the tattoo that the other woman has, right?
0: The other woman has it on her front. So it's kind of a, you're playing with the front back thing. Lots of art historical, classical reference there. Yeah.
1: So she has the the sort of call signs tattooed around, you know, on her shoulders, or on, on her chest, or on her shoulders. And they're from a, a type of Russian rocket engine. Um, and so I was thinking about these two modes of escape, like Harriet Tubman, you know, the underground railroad and people escaping into slavery. And actual like the actual escape of gravity into outer space right and and condensing those two ideas together and like literally these two figures are communicating like the woman with the Harriet Tubman tattoo is whispering some sort of plot into the ear of the woman with with the call letters yeah so I was really thinking about again you know we were talking about the drawing Ascension like the notion of leaving earth as a like to say metaphorical idea is in so much of my work and it's not about like a literal representation of of going into space but it's about if we were able to like figure out how to move beyond the notion of race in america i don't think we can even imagine what that would look like and so like the unknown nature of outer space for me is that like it's the same thing. And so these are people who are trying to get liberated into this unknown.
0: In the recent work, in work you've made this year, you have gotten really interested in drapery and these extravagant, enormous pieces of cloth draped over and around and on bodies. Why?
1: It's because I love to do it. I mean, I love to draw. Like, it, it kind of looks like that. <laughs> kind
0: of, you know, there, there's a barokeness to it that kind of suggests right. you're having a good time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is a way to kind of, you know, I think quickly get to, you know, I, I think some of the the drama that you're talking about, and it it it's just an element that you can add that does a little bit of that kind of work, but it's also I mean, just as a thing to challenge and keep track of, like it's fun to work with that stuff on that scale and to see if I can actually do it. You know, for me, I love to draw. I mean, it's kind of the thing that I do. It doesn't come easy by any means. It's such of a struggle for me that like, I kind of push myself to do things that I think some artists might do a bit easier. But for me, it takes a little bit of, concentration and work and and i I like to like practice at it and
0: some of them feel vaguely kind of olga era picasso in the in the mix of the present and the classical reference although one of yours has a comic book in it and so picasso didn't do that
1: (laughs) no 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 you must be you're talking about i turned myself into myself that one's very yeah
0: you have spoken before about how Kerry James Marshall is is a favorite of yours, he and he and Charles White. One of the things that Marshall does in his work is he picked, early in his career, a single color he was going to use for, st- for skin tone. And he's been on the show before, and he's talked about why, and we'll link to that on manpodcast.com. That is a—you uh, know, you, you've consciously— Decided to do kind of the opposite. All of your skin tones are different. They are a, a wide range of black and brown. Was that something? Was that a decision you remember consciously making as a, a much younger artist? Do you remember engaging with the way Marshall did it and thinking that you wanted to do it a different way?
1: Not not in terms of of Kara James Marshall's work. Like I, as I mentioned before, I was using in the past that brown butcher paper, which you know only came in like variations of like two or three colors that were not that distinct from each other like you know you can hold them up next to each other and see the difference, but when they're not next to each other, it all feels like the same exact brown when I moved so, so that gave me like one consistent skin color skin tone to kind of as a as a sort of like under kind of thing right to work from when I moved away from that paper and began dyeing the paper particularly as I moved to coffee, I realized, like, oh, I can build up the layers of color to give me different skin tones. And that wasn't, like, that was, I don't want to say accidental, but it was just a discovery in, like, working with the material. When I initially started and I would use tea, I could dye the paper, and I really worked to kind of get to, like, a very particular kind of Golden tone, but there wasn't a lot of like variation. When I switched to coffee, I realized like, oh, I can like layer and layer and layer to to basically open up that range of skin tones to kind of really, and that was like exciting because I felt like I can like expand the representation. like even beyond like you know my ability to kind of represent skin tone just through value and that sort of thing. but like, this color thing without actually using color. I can like explain this, expand this representation. I don't think it has been as much of a conscious decision in the way that Carrie J. Marshall uses that sort of black color as, a, as an idea. I think for me it is just part of the way that I'm representing like a group of people.
0: Robert Pruitt, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: the museum of contemporary art san diego presents being here with you estando aquí contigo 42 artists from san diego and tijuana at its downtown location through february 3rd 2019 the exhibition brings together work by 42 artists and collectives living and working in the san diego and tijuana region presenting both early career and established artists being here with you estando aquí contigo highlights distinctive practices shaping conversations and communities in the binational region and beyond. For more information, visit MCASD.org. Welcome back. My next guest is art historian Maggie Chow, who joins me to discuss her book, The End of Landscape in 19th Century America. The book, which was published by University of California Press, offers some ideas about why Chow thinks landscape declined as a subject of American art near the end of the 19th century. Chow teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Maggie Chow, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: What does it mean for landscape painting to end?
2: So I wrote this book uh, in in part to think about what happens when a really tremendously important cultural tradition Begins to wane and its central tenets are questioned in the art world. And that's really what I meant by titling the book The End of Landscape. You know, I didn't mean that, you know, artists uh, across the United States just, you know, full on stop painting landscape paintings. Of course, we know that's not true. But I really was thinking about the end of a specific tradition of, you know, mid 19th century landscape paintings that really had a tremendous role to play in a kind of cultural tr- construction of American identity and artistic identity in the United States.
0: We'll get to the why in a minute, but just to kind of ground listeners in the moments about which we're talking, when do you argue the landscape
2: painted painting waned? I start the book, the earliest material in the book is really around 1870, sort of post-Civil War, when there's the beginning of a lot of kind of land development projects of various sorts and a deep concern about, you know, how land and politics are aligned following the Civil War. So that's really where I start thinking about landscape coming to an end.
0: So let's talk about why you think it ended. Is the end of landscape painting, because you don't deal with really with photography at all in the book, related to a broader cultural national cultural shift around landscape?
2: I think it is. Over the years of writing the book and and researching for the book, what I ended up focusing around was changing ideas of how land and nature were understood. And a lot of those changes had to do with the actual interventions in the landscape. So You know, real estate development and the drainage and environmental kind of interventions that were taking place, the um, expansion of railroads, the end of the frontier, all of these historic shifts that all happened around the end of the 19th century that really altered the way that Americans were seeing their landscapes. You know, how these landscapes were actually changing in the hands of development and Industrialization and environmental interventions.
0: To fill in a bit of of backstory for for listeners, landscape really becomes the core of white American culture, and the identity of the young nation starting in around 1836, when Emerson's Nature is published and Cole's Oxbow is finished and just sort of first shown almost simultaneously, and of course both men to go go on to continue to build on what they did in 1836 Cole and in in many paintings, although at the end of his career, he kind of went in a non landscapy allegorical mythological direction. And Emerson, of course the very next year does uh, gives his American scholar lecture at Harvard in which he argues, he extends the argument in nature that that landscape should be the underpinning of a uniquely American non-European looking culture is Part of your argument that artists have kind of, by by the 1870s, 80s, 90s, begun to look less at, at Cole and think less about Emerson, or is it, or, or not?
2: I think that they're really, the artists at the end of the 19th century are trying to grapple with the that legacy, actually. you know, the fact that um, Cole and Emerson had in in a way been so successful at promoting that ideal of what landscape could be for American culture. I think they're really trying to grapple with what do you do when that is such a significant legacy? In, in landscape painting that you have to grapple with now that we may not see that it as, you know, the actual landscape reflecting those ideals that came out of the 1830s.
0: So before we get into specific artists, you know, there's a there's a conventional standard, I don't know what the the right word would be, line of thought that the landscape ends as or begins to end or peter out or change maybe as an interest of american artists both painters and photographers in in the years of the armory show and and then with the coming of world war one which all happens within about five or so years You're, you're arguing that landscape painting changes or peters out before that
2: yes right so i the book actually ends in that era the sort of early part of the 20th century but Right. So I'm really making a case that, you know, it's very in, in the history of American art, the standard narratives, it's very common to see that as a major shift, breaking point, or change in understanding of what American art is all about. It's often dated to that, what you mentioned, the Armory Show, World War I. And I guess what I'm trying to show is that, uh, in fact, there are artists who, at the end of the 19th century, were really Concerned about where the direction of American art, how the legacy of the mid 19th century can be rethought in terms of modernity in the late night, later part of the 19th century. It's just that their artwork tends not to be as recognizably different as you know artists working in the earlier part of the 20th century.
0: Rebecca Bedell takes on some of those ideas in her new book that we uh, about sentiment in American art that we talked about on the Man podcast late late last year. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. So the first artist you take on is Albert Bierstadt. He keeps painting landscapes that are identifiably American from the 1850s into the 1890s and to a certain extent he stops, you know, because he dies. (laughs) What makes his paintings of the 1880s and 1890s identifiably endy in a way that's different from the paintings he was making in the 60s and 70s? The
2: chapter on Bierstadt came last in a way in my kind of, Thinking about the book. And I always thought there had to be something about the West because, you know, how could the end of the frontier, the idea that the frontier is ending, is so central to conceptions of landscape. And I'd always been interested in Bierstadt's non landscape projects of his late career and i always felt that the landscapes by the 1880s and 90s these grand landscapes of the west that he had been painting he continues to paint in the manner that he had begun his career you know his the success of his career really were become kind of stale you know they were just like repeats of what he had been doing but at the same time he was engaged in these very weird projects like he invented uh, or he patented this strange railway car that was supposed to unfold into a gallery and he started making these strange butterfly souvenirs that think a lot about the relationship of painting to chance. So I thought these were all in some way related to his, an artist really grappling with what do you do when there is no West to paint? So that the subject that had made him so successful is is slowly disappearing or and slowly becoming so popular that you know, anyone can travel to the West and take photographs and purchase prints. So it's no longer his domain.
0: Of course, it was photographs that got him uh, out to out to the far West in the first place. And, and as, a, as Carlton Watkins's biographer, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Bierstadt's railroad car idea almost certainly comes from Watkins. <laughs> and and Watkins is building out and, and, and use of a custom uh, railroad car. Martin Johnson Heed is your next chapter. Um, your chapter starts where the cover of your book starts, which is with one of Heed's two great, weird, and weirdly great gremlin paintings, the painting on which one of his classic Newburyport salt marshes is kind of put up on stilts and drains itself. It's one of the coolest, weirdest things in 19th century <laughs> American art. I can't, I can't even talk about it without laughing. So he also paints landscapes until he dies although he mixes in more than Bierstadt does he does he mixes in still life painting and flower painting and the odd portraiture here and there which he does almost throughout his life more specifically than Bierstadt he looks at land use in those those two weird gremlin paintings so how does how do those two paintings point to your end argument
2: Yeah, I I love this painting. And I was very adamant on putting it on the cover. Yeah, so it's, uh, and, and you know, it's a, it's very strange, because he essentially takes one of his own paintings, these paintings of marshes that he's very, you know, he makes Dozens and dozens of these marsh paintings, they're very small, sort of small panoramas of of, of very flat marshy landscapes in the east coast of the United States, northeast mainly, but he does some in Florida as well later in his career. He essentially takes that and and uses that as as a kind of meta painting that makes fun of landscape in a way because his own painting is shown draining out the water from the marsh falling onto the floor of this studio setting that he's created. And this painting really was the kind of this, and there's another version as well. These two paintings were really at the heart of the book in a way, because here's an artist who is not only interested in, you know, subverting conventions of landscape in his work, but he's making pictures that, directly address the issue of landscape painting in relation to environmental interventions. And that is sort of the, at the heart of the way that I think about his marsh paintings in general, because the this painting, the Gremlin painting, the water is draining. And I think that is related to wetland drainage that is happening all over the East Coast in the 1870s Period when he's creating these landscapes. This is an era of great expansion and building and suburban growth. And these wetlands, which are a huge, take up huge areas um, around major cities on the East Coast, need to be dried out in order to become farmland or. Building, you know, so he's really tackling the issue of drainage directly with an artwork like this.
0: You also look at Heed's paintings of flowers and hummingbirds, and I guess other birds to point to an end of landscape. It could just as easily be argued, I think, that those Heeds are an intensifying of interest in landscape and nature, as as urged by Emerson, specifically in the middle of of eighteen thirty six nature. So, how do they facilitate? Or point to an end rather than a particular Emersonian engagement.
2: Yeah, I think it's true that these paintings, they're very precise renderings of tropical flowers and birds. So they could, you know, very there were also artists painting a kind of close-up studies of nature, which are very much in that kind of Emersonian mode. I think these are different with respect to the the their relationship, in fact, to paintings of the tropics that were made by Frederick Church. So Church, of course, very probably the most famous landscape painter of the 19th century, was very well known for these very grand, large scale paintings of the tropics. And where he, you know, traveled there and collected studies and did these studio paintings that are tremendous with an amazing amount of detail, And Heed was actually a friend of Church's and worked um, a lot, made many of these paintings in Church's actual studio. So I think these paintings are a kind of, you know, speaking back to Church. He's also doing, Heed is also doing the tropics, but he's doing them in a very different kind of scale. He's asking you to look in a very different way that does not give viewers this idea of access to unlimited space, you know. These small paintings of where the flowers are, and I should say these are often very, very large flowers, almost monstrous in their kind of proportion to the canvas, they do not give viewers a sense of being a kind of explorer, having access to, you know, untouched wilderness in a faraway place. They are about a kind of confrontation with nature that is almost, you know, it almost puts the viewer in a space of... Not knowing where they can step because these are aerial, sort strangely aerial. There's no ground that you could walk upon that you could engage with space in the way that you know the viewers, the ideal viewers, imagine to engage with a landscape painting in that period.
0: You call Ralph Blakelock an economic artist. Uh, how so?
2: Well, he, he was very obsessed with money. <laughs> so he painted, in fact, he painted landscapes on fabric and paper that resemble banknotes. So in, in a very literal way, he's an economic artist, and that he was very much thinking about the relationship of landscape to money, putting them together in, uh, you know, in works of art. And I think in a in a more conceptual sense, he's an artist that is thinking about economic issues of his time, both issues related to real estate and the changing idea of the value of land, as well as um, to this shift in understandings of money and value in the 19th century. There are a lot of debates about paper money and its validity. In place of metallic money, and so I think he was an artist that was really thinking about these kind of larger economic debates of his day.
0: Your exit artists, as 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 it were, the last two artists to receive chapters to themselves are are Thayer and Sargent, and they're also the the only two artists in the book whose lives continue through World War One, who were alive through the war, the 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 time at which industry kind of becomes the great American thing. Did you want us specifically, you know, kind of get into and past those World War I years and and how how do Thayer and Sargent, who are really enormously different artists than the other painters in the book, point to your thesis?
2: You know, I really wanted to deal with there's in, in I feel like in narratives of art history and in American art history, there's often this idea that, well, artists turned away from landscape to focus on the figure. And, you know, European, the influence of European art, you know, artists were looking to Europe at the end of the 19th century and getting trained in Europe and painting the figure. And so it really becomes, uh, landscape disappears and is replaced by figural painting. And I wanted to address that somehow in the book. And I, the way that I chose to do it was to deal with two artists that knew each other and that even though their work is very different, they communicated, they, you know, wrote to each other. They were in some ways collaborators during the war and thinking about camouflage. So I was thinking about these artists as really engaged with the idea of the figure in the landscape, you know, how to integrate the figure into the landscape, how those two things for both of these artists... Essentially, they're both interested in undoing the distinction between figures and landscapes, turning figures into landscapes or landscapes into figures. And this is something that Thayer does with these amazing studies uh, about animal camouflage. And if you you know follow camouflage to its logical end, it's essentially the figure becoming landscape. And this was something that they became obsessed with and did an enormous number of artworks that were oriented around that idea. Um, and Sargent is, in fact, doing something very similar, but he's coming at it from a different direction, not from the direction of natural science and Darwinian theory, you know, which is Thayer's background, but from uh, a kind of more academic and then from the background of a more academic artist engaging with modernist European modernism and the, the techniques, painterly techniques of European modernism. And he arrives at it really a series of landscape paintings, figure and landscape paintings that do very similar things
0: finally one of the the things that i noticed popping up in in most but not all of the chapters in the book it's not so much there in Sargent, for example is that you often built your arguments around kind of the quieter side project things that artists did and then built arguments around them so with Bierstadt, we have his folded butterfly paintings which were kind of a uh uh, I don't know. Party trick isn't the right word, but they were, you know, intended to personalize him to people who, who might once they got to know him, um, you know, drop 25 grand on a, on a, on a, on, on meringue masquerading as the Rocky Mountains, or, or the Heeds. You know, th- those two Heads are are two off, are two off, and he painted, you know, a hundred something marsh scenes, and and the Blakelock monotypes, which he made in the size of currency. Is part of your argument that in some of these projects, artists are freer to wink and nod and point to something even as, you know, they were making their bread and, bread and butter on, on kind of bigger, more traditional style addresses, painted addresses?
2: I do think that's true, you know, because certainly for artists like Bierstadt and also for Thayer, I mean, both those artists were successful in certain type of painting that was popular. And so they weren't as engaged with problematic questions that were, I mean, for in the case of Bierstadt, you know, he wanted to maintain the market for those large pictures. So he was really, you know, his own, I think, questioning of where landscape painting is going has to happen in artworks that are not made for that market that he's cultivating. So, and I also think that, you know, it, it's often the case that artistic experiments do not necessarily happen. At least in the 19th century, um, the most experimental works of art are not always the ones that have the most lasting legacy or that have the most market share. So I think I turn to artworks that are very experimental for these artists, or, you know, these are. They're, they're grappling with issues that are central to their practice, but they're doing it in ways that may be seen at the time as, you know, unsellable or just, you know, not viable in a, in a, in a kind of professional sense.
0: Maggie Chow, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.